Okay, we're in the book of Ruth. What we'll do, we'll just have a quick recap on chapter one. Uh, we'll just read through the text and just uh, add a few comments for those that weren't here last week. And just to uh, give us a nice kind of springboard into chapter two, which is where we're going to be studying this evening. Um, we mentioned last week that the book is just an amazing book. There's, there's various levels that the book works on. Um, the obvious level is just it was an historical event that took place uh, in the time of the judges, as we read in the first verse. And we read there that um, there was a famine in the land. And we mentioned last week again that there's been um, seven famines in the land of Israel that are recorded in Scripture. There were other famines that were as a result of sieges or whatever else when the enemy kings had you know, besieged Jerusalem or whatever else. But um, famines that were on the land in general, uh, we read seven of them. And it's quite interesting because, um, as we looked at last week, and Pete uh, um, spotted the... Uh, the, the um, uh, the, the shadow, if you like, of uh, the tribulation time, because we have um, three and a half famines, and the one here being half of that. that there's three famines in, in the land, which um, God just allows these natural things to occur to bring about his own particular um, plan in those situations. They were the famines with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Uh, we're, we're not told they were a result of disobedience or anything like that. They were just things that happened that God used for his purposes. Uh, the last three famines that are recorded in Scripture uh, are all to do with Israel's disobedience, and they are specific judgments that God brings because of Israel's disobedience. Um, and then we have the one here in the book of Ruth, and it's kind of a combination of the both, because there was, uh, as we know from reading through the book of Judges, a lot of disobedience. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. We read at the end of the book of Judges and also throughout the book. Um, but also God used this famine to bring about his own purposes as well. So it's kind of a combination. So we have this kind of a three and a half, three and a half model, which um, certainly echoes the tribulation with the tribulation that really the bulk of the first three and a half years, uh, the judgments there are very much natural judgment that God allows um, to really, the, the, the main purpose is to get people to repent. Um, the last bunch of judgments are ones that are specific judgments that God pours out his wrath on people that haven't repented so there is a kind of a, a distinction there uh, kind of a subtle um, thing So, um, but there we have this, um, this famine and as a result of this um, this um, man Elimelech um, takes his family to the land of Moab and uh, we mentioned last week the name Elimelech means God is my king um, only he wasn't living like that um, but then we looked at the parallels of the, how when we leave the, God, the place that God has, pl- has planted us in, as it were, uh, and we go to, to foreign places, um, God is my king dies in our own lives. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, Elimelech died in this land that he went to. Um, but we, we go on. I'll just, just read through the text. Uh, verse 2. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, which means pleasantness or pleasant. And the name of his two sons were uh, Marlon and Chilion. Um, Marlon means unhealthy, and Chilion means puny or pining. Um, whereas we kind of pick a name for a child that we think is a nice name, very much the, the Jews would pick a name that reflected something about the person, something to do with their lives. Uh, case in point, Esau um, was uh, named so because he was red and hairy, and Esau is the same root as Edom, you know, being red. Sure, we all had Edam cheese. The reason it's called that is because it's you know the red binder on it and those things. So, um, and, and throughout Scripture, we find people are given names uh, according to the particular events that took place at their birth or whatever else. So, um, we don't know much about these two boys other than the fact that they were obviously pretty weak and puny. They weren't um, um, uh, particularly strong characters, and that's uh, echoed in the fact that they die in the land as well. And uh, verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left um, and her two sons. So the husband dies and just the two sons left. And uh, the two sons then took wives of the women of Moab. Now, there was one of the things Pete mentioned last week, and I did go and check into this, because um, a lot of commentaries actually say the reason they died very young in the land was because they'd taken Moabite wives and they were forbidden to do so. Well, that's not actually true. Um, in um, Exodus 34... Uh, verses 12 to 16, it's in the notes, but if you want to make a note of it, Exodus 34, 12 to 16 says, Take heed to yourselves, this is um, obviously Moses, or the Lord speaking through Moses to the people, um, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you go, uh, Let it be, sorry, lest it be a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. 
lest they make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they go whoring after their gods and do sacrifice unto their gods um, and one call thee and thou eat after his sacrifice and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons and their daughters go whoring after their gods and make thy sons go whoring after their gods so there's this um, prohibition in the law that God had put there not to intermarry with the people in the land that they were going to possess but that is in the land they were going to possess. That was the land of Canaan. Well, um, we know quite clearly that, that uh, the land of Moab and also Edom uh, and Ammon uh, were, also, were, were actually not in part of the land. They were separate. They were uh, bordering the edge of Israel. Uh, and the, um, as we mentioned last week, uh, Moab and also Ammon were the descendants uh, of Lot. Um, so in a sense, they were kind of family to Israel, distantly related. Um, so the reason God said don't marry the, the, the in, in, intermarry with the people in the land was because of the the giant tribes um, that we read about that were on the earth before the flood and also after those days, um, which Satan had uh, purposely um, allowed and uh, engineered to try and destroy Israel. So if the Jews had intermarried in these nations, there'd have been a real problem. And we we, we see a, an example of that in Genesis thirty nine or thirty eight. Is it thirty eight? Isn't it? believe uh, with the situation uh, with Judah uh, and his sons uh, and the story there uh, and his sons take Canaanite wives and God kills them because he's cross with them um, so that was a specific case there where they, they did what they weren't supposed to do and God did kill them but that's not the case here in fact we actually read um, in um, Deuteronomy um, chapter 2 verse 9 it says and the Lord said unto me as to Moses distress not the Moabites neither contend with them in battle for I will not give thee of their land for a possession because I have given art unto the children of Lot for a possession so God had a, a particular place for the children of, of Moab the descendants of Lot uh, as we mentioned last time this actually crops up in Jeremiah there's a whole chapter uh, I think it's Jeremiah 48 uh, a whole chapter of prophecy. Um, and at the end of that prophecy, God promises to restore uh, the children of Moab. So um, there's still a place yet for them in God's plan. And it's actually that area uh, that is made up with those three nations particularly, which you've got, as you, as you come down the side of Israel, the, you've got the sea, the Mediterranean on one side, and then the other side you've got coming down, you've got Ammon, then you've got um, Moab, and then you've got Edom. And that, that area... It's the area that Daniel tells us will not come under the control of Antichrist during the tribulation. And it's the area that Israel are going to flee to through that time. So God still has a plan for these offspring and these descendants. Um, they are, you, you've heard the term um, anti-Semitic. Um, and we, we take that to mean anti-Jewish, which in the way most people term it is what it means. But um, really what they're talking about is the descendants of Shem. That's where the, the name comes from, and Shem being one of the sons of Noah. Well, all of these these nations we're talking about, Moab, Ammon, Israel, Edom, they were all descendants of Shem. They were all part of that family line. So just to give you a bit of a background there. So anyway, but the two um, children die. And um, verse 5, Mahal and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman, that's Naomi, was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law uh, that she might return, might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. And what's happened now is that back in the land of Bethlehem, where this famine was, the famine's now ended and that they've now got food again. Uh, we also mentioned again the Bethlehem Judah. Uh, Bethlehem means house of bread and the Judah bit means praise. So we've got the house of bread and praise. And uh, there's, there's lots of little touches of irony that they left this house of bread and praise to go into a land which actually in Psalms God calls my wash pot. Um, so... Uh, and, and so often we tend to do the same kind of things in our own lives. We, we walk away from the, the things that God has because we're not patient, because we don't wait on the Lord, um, and we end up in situations where actually we, can, we, we lose far more um, than what we perceived we might lose if we stayed put and just trusted God. Um, there then comes this, this, um, this scene where the, the daughter-in-laws you know, say, no, 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 we're going to come back with you. And Naomi says, no, 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 I've got nothing I can give you. I've lost my land. I've got no way of claiming it back because I've got no more sons. Uh, etc. If you come come back with me, I can offer you nothing. Um, and at that point, um, one of the daughter-in-laws goes back, but Ruth doesn't. Uh, Ruth makes this big thing. She says, "You know, Morris, don't even tempt me to go back. I want to come with you." And she says, um, "It's this beautiful phrase um, to Naomi." Um, 
Ruth, this is verse 16, it says, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goes, I will go, and whether thou lodge, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. And we talked about this last time. We went through the, all of those things. Very significant what she was saying, that she wanted to be part of, of God's people. She claimed Naomi's God as her own God. And she wanted to be buried in that land because she was she understood the promises that had been made uh, about the Jews and about that land in particular. Uh, incredible time. But it just, just hits, uh, as I was going through typing up the notes for it, um, the, the importance of that decision. And so often, um, bringing it into our own kind of arena, um, we're faced with decisions where probably nobody else we see is going to notice it. And all that was involved in this situation, there's these there's two girls in a kind of crossroads in the road, and Naomi, Naomi's saying to Ruth, look, go back. You know, go back to your own people, go back to your own gods and everything else. You know, you can, if you come with me, I can't promise you anything. In fact, I haven't got anything to offer you at all. Um, and Ruth makes that decision to go with Naomi. And how often we find ourselves at those crossroads and we think about all the, the cost implications and everything else. And so often we maybe do go back rather than going on. Um, and, and as we'll see, um, that little decision that Ruth made, which maybe at the time, okay, it was a big thing for both of them, but who else was that going to affect? Well, as we, we looked at last week, it affected whether or not the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, it was such a big decision, and it had lots of uh, repercussions. Uh, and I just encourage you know all of us to to consider the decisions we make in our lives. You know, we don't know what God is planning, and how much of an effect those decisions will have on other people. Um, the uh, there's there's so many little parallels, and we'll get into chapter two in just a moment. But Matthew 13, we read the story uh, or the parable there. Jesus talks about the. Um, uh, the man goes out to sow, and one of the seeds he talks about says, But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that hears the word, and anon receives it with joy. And this is very much like Orpher, um, uh, who um, so starts with, you know, Naomi says, I'm going back to my land. And she says, okay, we're going to come with you. And then they get to this crossroads. And Naomi says, do you really want to come with me? I've got nothing I can give you. You know, and, and it's, it's not a glamorous thing. And... You know, a lot of people receive the word with joy, um, and then it carries on, yet has no root in himself, um, but endureth for a while. Um, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that received the seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. There are many people that um, get into church life and everything else, and they want to go on with it. And then, because of the word, deceitfulness, uh, and the deceitfulness of riches and these things, it chokes the word. Um, and there's that kind of decision time again. And it, this is the kind of thing we're seeing here. But when we, we make that choice to go with, with, with God, again, we, we, we have no real concept of all the repercussions that are going to come as a result of our obedience to God. Um, Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And this is what Ruth was doing. Uh, and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is talking about for those that want to serve him, it's a life of sacrifice. And from that point on, you will never be the same again. Ruth basically was renouncing her own country. And that's what God calls us to do when we become Christians, to renounce the things of our past life. They are no longer going to be the way we live. Our lives are going to change and be completely different from that point on. Uh, Jesus continues, For whosoever will save, it, whosoever, um, will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall, shall find it. Um, I just thought, again, just a couple of interesting scriptures from Romans. Paul said, um, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now this is the battle that we have to, this is the thing. And even if we've made that decision that we want to be, um, uh, name the God of Israel as our God, that we want to go God's way, daily we, we find this battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Uh, it doesn't die. Um, because Paul says, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. In other words, they care for the things of the flesh. That's like Orpha. That's the kind of person she was. She was thinking about the impact it was going to have on her life, her future, everything else. And that's what she did. But they that are after the Spirit 
care for the things of the Spirit. And that's where Ruth was sitting. And that's where I hope and pray that we would be, um, that we don't want those things of the old life. Uh, and there's such a, a parallel here for us. Um, you know, and unless we live a disciplined life, and that is what being a disciple is about. You know, I think sometimes there's this uh, misapprehension that we become Christians and the struggle stops. No, no, no. When we become Christians, the struggle starts because that's when we understand that there's a struggle to be had. Uh, and there's this continual battle that we've got this choice of which way we go. Uh, and we've got a choice. We can either sow to the Spirit. Now, by sowing to the Spirit, we're talking about spending time praying together, reading the Word, fellowshipping together. All of these kind of things are sowing to the Spirit. Um, or we can sow to the flesh. And I would suggest that any time that we are not sowing to the Spirit, by default, we're sowing to the flesh. Because unless what you're doing at that particular moment in time is sowing to the Spirit, then it's going to be sowing to the flesh in whatever way. And even things as, as innocent as you know sitting down and, let's take it for the guys, watching football. Or for the ladies watching some innocent program, that's, nothing's wrong with it. But whilst those things aren't necessarily wrong in their own right, we have to be careful because those things will sow to the flesh because they're not spiritual. So there has to be this, this kind of understanding that everything we do in our lives, if it's not sowing to the spirit, it's sowing to the flesh. This is why Jesus talks about it being a sacrifice, you know, taking up your cross. It's not something that is just such a, um, yeah, it's easy, we can, be, we can be Christians, we can go God's way. You know, Jesus is talking about those who want to be disciples. And this is what we're talking about. And I would suggest there's a difference between Christians and disciples because discipleship is a real lifelong day by day moment by moment commitment whereas being a christian is something that once you accept it it's a free gift and you don't earn it you can't add to it or anything at all but god is wanting us to go on in him and th there is this this twofold thing is what we call sa salvation which is free uh, by the grace of god and sanctification which is also free and by the grace of god but we've got to moment by moment choose to receive the power to live the way that god would have us live okay um there's lots more on that kind of theme in the notes, um, but let's let's move on from now. For now, now. Um, uh, we looked then about the way that when Naomi got back into the land, um, she was very bitter. Um, you know, she blamed God. It's funny, you know, that, that people walk away from God and then blame God for the, the the things that happen as a result of that. And I thought it was very interesting what Ron had said uh, over the weekend. Um, uh, I think he's quoted from Psalm 91. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I have to say, it was quite um, poignant. As Ron said that on Saturday evening, I, I just looked up and looked at him. And because the lights were shining down, there was a shadow cast behind Ron on the stage, on the platform. And probably not a lot of people would have seen that. But it really hit me that, that, that if, you were gonna, uh, if you want to be under the shadow of the Almighty, you've got to be close to him. If you want to be in the shadow, you've got to be close to the Lord. And, and just seeing the shadow, you know, you, you could have been six foot away from Ron and you wouldn't have been in the shadow that, he, that was being cast because of the light. Uh, and I thought that's exactly the way it is with God. You know, that, that if we want to be under God's, um, under the shadow, to dwell under the shadow of his wing, as it were, uh, to be in his protection and care and everything else, then we've got to dwell with him. Um, you know, and that's a choice that we make. Um, but Naomi chose not to do that. She chose to, with her family, they went off to this land, and she lost everything. She came back empty, as she says. Um, and then, you know, she says in verse 20, uh, she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, uh, call me Mara, uh, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I just, that's just incredible, isn't it? You know, that she chooses to go away from God, uh, go away from the house of bread and praise. And then she says, God's given me a really rough time. I just, I just saw the parallel with us. And, you know, you can't blame Naomi. And, uh, you know, overall, Naomi's a wonderful person. And there's a lot of examples we'll see. Uh, but that was incredible. Um, and then verse 22, just to finish off the chapter. Uh, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite has her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, this is the time roughly around Pentecost, kind of the springtime. Uh, they get there. Okay. So now into chapter 2. And it says, And Naomi had a kinsman. Now that means a family member, somebody that's related to her. Um, of her husbands, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. 
Okay, so after the, the doom and gloom, if you like, that we end chapter one on, it's really good to hear some good news uh, as we go into this. That, that you know, Naomi's got a family member, you know, a kinsman, and he's a man of might, uh, sorry, a mighty man of wealth. He's, he's a person of um, important standing in the community. That comes out a little bit later on in chapter three as well. But somehow, maybe just because she's been away for such a long time, Naomi doesn't even stop to think about this. Um, and as we go on. Naomi's almost surprised to realise that, oh yeah, I remember this guy, as we'll see as we go on. Um, and um, we, we're told, obviously, that she comes back, she has nothing. And, and you know, the first thing you do, if you've been away and you come back and you've got somebody in your family that's a man of great wealth, you at least pop around for coffee, you know, just to see how they're doing. And when they say, how are you doing? You can say, actually, not too good, I could do with some money. But she doesn't. None of this seems to enter her mind. It's just, you know, it doesn't even, you know, equate for her. Um, but nevertheless, we're told that, and obviously it's important because obviously as we go through. Um, but that, I thought, was very interesting as well because Boaz, as we've already mentioned, is a type of Christ. Uh, and we see that in, in the, the fifth session that we, as we go through. We're going to look at all these models in depth, and it's just, just incredible. Um, and we read in Philippians 4.19, you're probably aware of the scripture, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And I thought, you know, with what a, such a wonderful promise there, uh, that God will supply all our need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus, how utterly amazing it is that people refuse to avail themselves of those riches that you know, God has for us. You know, there's the free gift of eternal life and the abundant riches that are spoken of. Um, and, you know, people in this world are empty. And I thought it was very interesting. I was speaking to, um, to Mitch yesterday after the service. Um, and uh, Mitch works um, with people suffering from um, mental illness. And uh, he was just saying, and it, it kind of, it, it, I t- kind of took a breath at the time because I thought, wow, that's incredible. But apparently one in four people in this country suffer from mental illness. That's one in four. That's an awful lot. That is an awful lot. And as Mitch said, he said, yeah, but they're only the ones we know about. And I thought, that's incredible. When we stop and consider it. And those illnesses, they, they go from things like depression uh, right the way through to mental breakdowns. And, you know, right, you know people are you know, losing the plot completely. Um, but I thought, you know, there's people out there really struggling. And God is there. You know, abundant resources. You know, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And people don't want to take advantage of it. And I thought, how like Naomi that is. She comes back to the land and she's got a wealthy relative and she doesn't take advantage of it. Incredible. But, um, you know, all these, these ideas and things in scripture, you know, throughout the Old Testament we read of Israel. And sometimes we think, you know, how could they do that? And then you've only got to look at your own life. And, um, Boaz, uh, the name means to strengthen, and um, I was just just thinking about this. You know, thinking, you know, but also that in Boaz again as being a type of Christ. I thought, you know, you can mix sand and stones and water together all day long, and what have you got? You've got soggy stand, sand and stones, haven't you? That's all you've got. But what happens when you add concrete? Yeah, it strengthens it. It makes something solid that you can build on. You can build skyscrapers, and you can build all sorts of things. And you know. This is what Paul declares. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. You know, there's another verse that uh, Ron brought out. You know, that regardless of what situations we're in, you know, what, whatever we're faced with, you know, Christ is the one who strengthens us. And it's like adding the concrete to that mixture. Without the concrete, you've just got a soggy mixture that's not going to do anything. Um, but when Christ is added, then we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And without Christ, we can do nothing. Yeah, which again, we are told in scripture. Um, Peter says, um, but the God of grace, sorry, the God of all grace, who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And this is what God wants to do. See, there's a, there's a kind of a double strengthening. There's that strengthening when we, when we become Christians. But also God wants to perfect us, to establish us, to strengthen us. And this is what I was talking about earlier, that decision uh, process we make, battling between the flesh and the spirit. God wants to give us the power so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. We've got the armour of God, we've got all of these things. Um, But it's it's an ongoing thing in our life. And really what we need to learn learn to do is to surrender and and allow God just that freedom and just just to choose God's way. Uh, It's so much easier to... um, to give in than it is to stand, but God will give us the power to stand. 
Um, <clears throat> and um, also, just a, another, um, just a little bit of information, but uh, um, Boaz must have made some kind of impression on his great-grandson, who was Solomon, um, because when Solomon built a temple, we read, out, we read in 2, 2 Chronicles 3.17, uh, he reared up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and called the name of that on the right hand, Jachin, and the name of that on the left, Boaz. Uh, or Jackin or Jacinth, sorry, um, means to establish. Um, so these two pillars either side means to, uh, to strengthen and to establish. Um, Joe Foch at their church over in uh, Philadelphia uh, have got some pillars on the outside of the building and they've actually put uh, Jacinth and Boaz, the names, both in Hebrew and English, on the pillars. Because he said, you know, when you come to, to, to this place, we want it to be a place where you're established and strengthened. And I thought that was great. I thought, you know... Yeah, it's probably they've obviously got it from the temple. They've got it from the temple, but um, yeah, that's what the names mean. <coughs> okay, um, so then in verse two it says, "And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn. After him, in whose sight I shall find grace." And she said unto her, "Go, my daughter." And again, I thought this was interesting. Unlike Naomi, Ruth decides to go and to try and do something about the situation. You know, Naomi's come back to land and she's sitting there moping, saying, oh, I don't know what we're going to do, you know. And Ruth is saying, well, why don't I go out and, and try and get into the fields and I can glean a bit? Um, and her request is based upon a provision that's made in the law of Moses, uh, which we'll look at in just a moment. Um, but I thought what was interesting is that it's Ruth that makes the request. This Moabite girl makes the request based upon what the law of Moses says. Now, how did she know that? Well, I would suggest the only way she could have known it is if Naomi had told her. Um, let's just just quickly turn with me, if you will. Uh, move around some scriptures for a moment. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And this is, I believe, why Ruth knew it. And, and, and this, I think, starts to paint Naomi in slightly better light as well, because it's easy to see Naomi as just a miserable, moaning woman, you know. Um, but when we uh, see this, uh, so Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, um, and it just says there, and these words, which I command thee this day, this is uh, obviously uh, God speaking through Moses, um, shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when, they, when thou sits in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Remember Barry Smith used to talk about this scripture. And, you know, when you actually look at those things there you know when you're sitting down in your house when you're walking by the way when you're lying down and when you're rising up that's pretty much everything covered and that's when the jews that's when the jews were told that's when you're going to talk about these things and again how that should be in our lives the things of the lord should be just on our lips all the time we should want to talk about the things of the lord um you know after services on a sunday you know we get out sometimes for a coffee and what do we talk about oh just other trivial things that have happened during the week you know should we not be talking about things of the Lord? You know, things that maybe were said in the last half hour or hour or whatever. You know, or things that God has been doing for us. Um, you know, and if we don't do it at a church on Sunday when we're all gathered together for fellowship, what are we like during the rest of the week? You know, are the things of God really, you know, on our lips? Do we talk about these things? Do we teach our children and you know, encourage each other when we're, you know, um, sitting in our houses? Or when we're walking, when we're going out, when we're driving in the car, as Barry Smith said, hey, let's bring it up to the modern you know, idioms. Uh, when we're driving in the car, uh, when, when you're lying down, you know, when you're rising up, you know, that's when the things of God should be important. But I suggest to you that Naomi had taught Ruth, because for some, somehow Ruth knows about this law, um, and she wouldn't have got it from her own culture, so somehow she's got it. And I suggest it be Naomi would be the one that's um, encouraged her into this. Um, and um, let's now, now look at this law itself. Let's uh, go through to Leviticus, chapter 19. So it's Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. And it just says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, uh, you shall not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shall thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shall thou gather every grape of the vineyard, of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor, the stranger, uh, sorry, for the poor and stranger. 
I am the Lord your God. Okay, so God is stating this thing that, that you know, when you've got a field and you're out harvesting your field, you know, don't do all the corners and everything else. And you've, maybe you've seen, um, you, even now when you've got um, tractors out and they're, they're chopping the corn down, when they get around the corner, they sometimes leave a little bit left in the corner, don't they? And this is the kind of thing we're talking about, that they weren't to do all of those kind of bits. They would leave those bits for the poor and the strangers, uh, etc. And um, let's look over in, um, or sorry, back into Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy. Sorry? Is it? There you go. Okay, well, this is obviously where it's uh, where it came from. So Deuteronomy twenty four. So Deuteronomy twenty four verses nineteen to twenty two. And it's uh, just reiterated, really. Um, and it says, uh, When thou cuttest down thy harvest in thy field, and hast uh, forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And that's interesting, because Ruth is all of those, in effect. She's left her, her home, so no longer does she have a father as such. A uh, stranger uh, in... Um, some of the, I've got, uh, Peter's going to have to check this one for me, but some of the King James, that's actually translated foreigner, stranger, but uh, the, the implication is the same either way. Um, and for the widow, which Ruth was. Um, it says, It shall be for the stranger, for the fathers, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. Um, and uh, let's carry, sorry, let's carry on. Uh, when thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest thy grapes, uh, the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. So this was obviously part of the law. And um, you can imagine Ruth reading that and thinking, right, look, that's my justification. I can go and do this. Um, so she says to Naomi, you know, let me go out and do this. And you know, she's saying, let me just go anywhere and whoever's you know eyes I've, I found grace as it were in other words you know whoever's going to let me do it um, and, um, and then she goes on um, right so verse 3 then and uh, she went and came and gleaned in the field um, after the reapers and her hat or as it happens uh, was to lie on the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was the kindred of Elimelech. Okay, now, this is where you just have to detect a little bit of God's sense of humour. Just so happens, she happens to go to the field that Boaz owned. Isn't that amazing? Okay, you know, I heard it said once, the coincidence is when God chooses to work anonymously. I, I quite like that. Um, this is amazing, it really is. You know, th- this isn't, she didn't just so happen. You know, this was preordained by God. Uh, this is the God that knows the end from the beginning. Uh, this is the God that's engineered all of this. And we read in Psalm 37 that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Well, certainly we know that Ruth was a good person. And uh, clearly we can see here that her steps were ordered of the Lord. She went out in the morning, she didn't know where to go. Um, maybe she prayed, maybe she just went and she just ended up in this field. But God was guiding her and leading her. Um, and I just thought it was, you know, it's a good lesson because so often we strive to try and figure out what God's will is for us in a situation uh, and we often look for the miraculous but very seldom do we find the answer there um, the miraculous normally um, is in something very very simple oh, sorry the answer is normally something very very simple uh, that God will lay before us and all of a sudden we'll realise that, that as we've been walking God has brought us to that place that he wanted us to be um, in 1 Kings um, some of you are familiar with the scriptures but 1 Kings 19, 11 and 12 it just talks about um, the situation where Elijah was seeking the Lord and uh, we have this strong wind but God's voice isn't in that God, he doesn't hear from God through that uh, then there's an earthquake and then there's a fire and God wasn't in any of those things and then there's this still small voice you know, and that's where God was. And so often we, we do try and you know sensationalise hearing from God and get in direction of things. Uh, and yet it's in the ordinary things of life that God will tend to lead and guide us. Um, so. 
And obviously, you know, we can see here that Ruth believed that God was going to provide. You know, she was taking, you know, the law that God had put there and she was seeing it as being applicable to her as, a, you know, all, all three of the categories mentioned. And she had faith. Um, but how interesting that she didn't just have faith. She had faith that were backed up by her works. Uh, without her works, her faith that God was going to provide would have done nothing. But she got off her backside and she went out and did something. Um, in James we read, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and, has, uh, and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them um, not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? In other words, you know, somebody comes to your house and says, you know, we need something, you know, can you help us? And say, so, yeah, God's going to provide you, and if you've got that thing that you could give them, and you don't do it. You know, what kind of faith is that that you've got? You know, you've got to show it by your works. Uh, he says, um, yeah, a man may say, uh, sorry. Um, I don't know. Uh, Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, uh, being alone. Yes, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou, believes that there is one, thou believest that there is one God. Thou does well. The devils also believe and tremble. But... Um, Will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Seeing, how, uh, seeing thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was justified, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. And so that's one example that James gives. Then he gives us another example. He says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Well, that's Boaz's mum, Rahab the harlot, as we mentioned last week. And Boaz's mum demonstrated her faith by her works. That's what James tells us. And so does Ruth. And you just have to wonder whether Boaz, when he's looking out on this, this young woman, as we'll see in a moment, sees a little bit of his mum in it, you know, and, and sees that um, that faith in action. Uh, I wonder whether that kind of crossed his mind as he went through these things. Um, again, remember that Rahab was a Gentile that had given up her own people and chosen to serve the God of Israel, just as um, Ruth was. And again, that parallel, I'm sure that Boaz spotted those things. So... Um, <coughs> Joe Foch uh, makes the comment that God... Has a corner in every field where he's made provision for you. Um, you know, whatever situation you're in, God has provision for, for you. Uh, in the corner, he says, no matter how difficult things are, God has made provision. Uh, and that through understanding God's word, Ruth knew what she must do. And the same is true for us. It, it comes down to understanding God's word. Okay, into verse 4, and it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Oh, what a great boss it, you know, Boaz must have been. You know, he gets to work, and the first thing he does is greets his employees in the name of the Lord. And they respond by asking God to bless him. Now, that, in, in a sense, is an ideal situation. And I'm very fortunate to work in an environment with other Christians. Um, and many of us, um, you know, don't do that. But how lovely it would be if every day we could go to work and God was the centre of all that we did and all that we said. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? There's going to come a time uh, when Jesus is reigning on this earth when things will be like that. But, you know, the principle is the Lord should be the centre of everything we do. Um, verse 5. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? So all of a sudden he's noticed this young girl that's out there um, reaping. Um, so, uh, and as any good boss would do obviously Boaz has got to sight and he's looking around he's surveying what's going on working out what's happening that day and obviously he notices this young girl um, now is it love at first sight I think it probably is um, but uh, a couple of just interesting things here notice that um, Boaz notices Ruth before she knows who he is and if I read to you John fifteen sixteen, which says you have not chosen me but I have chosen you yeah and God noticed us uh, way before we noticed him. Um, so anyway, Boaz says to his servant that was said over the reapers, whose damsel is this? And it's interesting that this servant isn't named. So we have an unnamed servant that introduces the bride to the groom. Okay. 
we'll uh, deal with more of these when we look at uh, the review at the end, coming back on them, but uh, incredible. Um, and the servant that was set over the reapers answered him and said, uh, it is the Moabitess damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. So the servant obviously was in charge and he, he knew what was going on. He'd obviously checked out who she was. She'd obviously probably gone to him and said, is it all right if I clean your field? And he said, yes, who are you? And everything else. So he, he, he's got the information and Boaz asks and he tells Boaz everything else. And he carries on in verse 7. This is him speaking, uh, the servant. Uh, and he says, and she said, I pray you, let me glean uh, and gather after the reapers among the sheep. So, she, so Ruth had asked permission if she could do it. Uh, so she came and has continued even from the morning until now um, that she tarried a little in the house. So the servant's saying, you know, she's got here early this morning and she's carried on and she's only had just a little break. So Boaz is quite impressed, obviously, with this young girl. Um, and um, verse, uh, this is verses 8 and 9, actually, we'll read together. Uh, then Boaz said unto Ruth, um, Here um, is thou not my daughter, um, Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine hand be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged thy young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels that drink of that which the young men have drawn. Uh, this is just full of fun, these, these bit of verses here. Um, the... Um, Boaz obviously makes it very clear that he wants her to stay in this field. You know, don't bother going anywhere else. Listen to what I'm saying. Stay in this field. Don't bother gleaning anywhere else. And you can you know, work alongside my maidens. Um, and he personally vouches for her safety and to provide for her needs. And again, you start to see the model in this. Um, and obviously it's what Christ has done for us. But then I thought that was a, a lovely little touch at the end here. Uh, and drink of that which the young men have drawn. She's been encouraged to drink of water that she'd not drawn herself. And uh, straight away I thought of John chapter 4, you know, the woman at the well. You know, and she was saying, well, how am I going to draw you know, if nobody's here? And Jesus offers the, the real water, you know, the water of life. Um, verse 10, then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou should take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger, or a foreigner, if you like? Well, we could spend probably weeks on this verse alone. Um, this this really hit me when I when I first kind of went through this. Uh, it was actually when we were up at the CRE, and um, one morning I was just just going through listening to a commentary, and I just had to stop at this point and make some notes because this is incredible. Um, I mean, her response is is like our response should be given the the situation, um, but this question is is so applicable to us. And I just want to just go through this because you know she she bows down on the ground. You know she she's you know, so, so grateful. And that's how our response should be to Jesus, obviously. But then she says, why have I found grace in your eyes? And just taking that apart, we've got that why. You know, that's the question. You know, think about us and Jesus. Why have we found grace in his eyes? You know, the emphasis on the why. Why on earth have we found grace in Jesus' eyes? Well, the only reason is because it pleased him. That's the only reason. That's the why. Why have I found grace in Jesus' eyes? Because it pleased him. That's it. Not because of anything in me. There's nothing in me that deserves it or is worthy or anything else. Because it pleased him. Boaz is looking at Ruth and it pleased him to say, you, want, you stay in my field. Okay? It pleased him. It was, it, was, it was for his benefit, if you like, not hers, that he was, he was doing this. And then we get this, why have I? You know, then stop and think about who you are. And why should God choose you you know Ruth is some um, foreigner poor she's got nothing to offer and you know she says why have I but for us why have we found grace in God's sight you know thankfully none of us know each other as we really are because otherwise we probably wouldn't spend a lot of time to, with each other but we know ourselves what God knows about us we know those secret things that we like to keep hidden from everybody else you know and those character flaws that we have, those mood swings, those attitudes. Um, you know, for those that are married, it's uh, very easy to find out things after the marriage that you knew nothing about before. You know, but even those kind of things don't really get down to who we're like, who we really like deep down. And yet God has his grace on us. You know, why does God choose us? You know, you know why have I found grace? Uh, and again, the reason is, because we have become the object of God's affection. That's why I have found grace in God's eyes. Because I have become an object of God's affection. 
that's incredible. That's mind blowing. You know, and as we read through this, you know, you just think, how can we go out and do things that displease him? After we've understood what Ruth is saying here and how it applies to us, how can we do anything in our lives that we know is displeasing to God when we stop and consider what he's done for us and why he's done it? And then why have I found grace? You know, this abundance that God has blessed us with and given us. And Ruth was going to be a beneficiary of all this abundance that, that was laid out there. Um, and uh, the answer is, you know, for, for Boaz, you know, because I have abundance. Uh, I have an abundance of what you need and it pleases me to give it to you. And that's the way it is with Jesus, that Jesus has an abundance of what we need and it pleases him to give it to us. See, again, none of it's about us. It's not about our being worthy or lovely or desirable because we're not and then we uh, get to the end is why have i found grace in your eyes and now stop and think about the one whose eyes we found grace in you know for ruth this was the mighty wealthy boaz the landowner you know he was a a pillar of the community Uh, we we believe he from one of the references in chapter three that he sat on the town council he may have even been in charge of the town council he was possibly top dog in the city. Incredible character. And you know, anybody would have probably done anything for this man. He was an incredible, you know, wealthy and prosperous and everything. And, you know, and Ruth is saying, Why have I found grace in your eyes? You of all people, why do you take notice of me? And then for ourselves, you know, when we think about what God has done, why should the God that created the heavens and the earth, that with a click of his fingers could start all over again if he wanted to? You know, or annihilate us if he wanted to, but he doesn't. You know, and that is the God in whose eyes we found grace. And if that doesn't humble you, nothing will. So just like Ruth, we were strangers. Um, but not only has God brought us into his field and protected and provided for us, but he's poured his grace upon us and made us part of his family. And that's what we see happen exactly the same with Ruth. Incredible. Okay. Um, verse 11. Um, and Boaz answered and said unto her, uh, it, it has fully been shown me. Now, so this, is, this is Boaz's answer now. So Ruth is saying, why have I found grace in your eyes? You know, why me? Why all of this? We've just gone through. And Bo- this is what Boaz answers and says, uh, it has fully been shown me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity and art come unto a people uh, which thou knewest not heretofore. Okay? Didn't know before what time. That must have made Boaz go, uh, sorry, made Ruth go, wow. She just happened on this field. She just turned up in this field by chance. And then she, she realizes that this guy is a very wealthy guy. And she says, you know, why have I found grace in your sight? And then Boaz tells her everything, she, everything about her, her family history pretty much. And again, that reminded me again of that chapter in, in John 4 where that, lady at the well went off and says come and see a man which told me all things that I ever did is this not the Christ you see Jesus has known us intimately from before we were born and one of the most beautiful things about this is that there's nothing that we can do that will surprise him you know there's nothing good that we can do that we deserve praise for because he knew all about it beforehand and there's nothing bad there's no sin that we can commit that he didn't know about and yet he still chose us and uh, as Chuck Misler uses many times i think it's a very very good illustration he talks about you know you think of your, your, your sin you know when jesus died on the cross were your sins past present or future well they're all future every sin that we've committed was yet future when jesus died on the cross and every one of them has been forgiven and there's nothing that we're going to do tomorrow or later this week or next week that is going to take god by surprise there's some things that are probably going to shock us about ourselves because I don't know about you, but I never cease to surprise myself with things that I end up doing. You think, why? You know, just so stupid. And yet, God loves us. And God has chosen us. And it's just incredible. Um, Boaz, obviously, though, had done his homework. Because, you know, Boaz didn't know that she was going to be turning up that morning. Um, and Boaz didn't just say, hang on a minute, let me just consult my records and go back. No, he knew this because he finds out who she is and it's the, the, you know, says to the servant, you know, who is this girl? And he says, oh, this is Ruth the Moabitess. And Boaz is like, ah, oh, right, okay. And he's ready for her because then he offers, you know, says, work in my field and everything else. Uh, and she says, why have I found grace in your sight? 
Um, and Boaz is ready with answers. He'd already done his homework. He must have known that she'd come back. So all of this was already going on in his mind. And Boaz had already made these decisions way before Ruth was even back on the scene as such. He knew what happened. He obviously, he'd heard about uh, the death of uh, father-in-law and her husband and her brother-in-law and the fact that they, she'd looked after her mother-in-law and that they'd come back into that and she'd given up her own people. He knew, he knew all about this. And this is why he's saying, this is why I want to bless you because I've seen what you've done. I've seen the way you've, you've given up and you, you've chosen the God of Israel. Verse um, 12. The Lord recompense thy work, Boaz continuing speaking here, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. So her decision to follow the God of Naomi was not in vain. And, you know, Boaz prays that God will give her a full reward, which as we're going to see, she gets that, uh, exactly that. Um, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. You see, God says that if we're prepared to give up things for him, we also will be blessed. And, and, and Ruth here is our, our example. See, Ruth went back into this land not knowing that she was going to get anything. She had no prospect of a, a, a husband. You know, she was a stranger. Chances of anybody marrying her was very, very remote. You know, they had no land as such to speak of. They were poor. You know, and that was the prospect. That's what she chose. She chose to go that way. She wanted to serve the God of Israel. But boy, did she get blessed. You know, and when we choose to go God's way and choose to a life of following God, Jesus says, you're not going to be out of pocket for it. Don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about those things that, you know, once you held dear, uh, just, you know, um, 13 and 14 uh, then she said um, let me find favour in thy, in thy sight my lord for uh, that thou hast comforted me and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thy handmaid though I be not like one of thy handmaidens and Boaz said unto her at uh, mealtime come thou hither and eat of the bread and dip thy morsel in the vinegar and she sat beside the reapers and, the, uh, and he reached uh, her, he reached her parched corn, and there was a pastor of the parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed and left. So, um, Boaz invites Ruth to come have a meal with them. Now, she's just a pauper in, in working in the field, but she's invited to come and sit at, at this table. And I thought, wow, again, for us, you know, we've been invited to go and sit at that table and take part of a feast. Um, again. Um, so, uh, but notice what they actually have in there. Um, it says vinegar, but it's actually, uh, the, the Hebrew word is, is a mixture made from grape juice. Okay, So really what we've got here is bread and wine. So she's invited to come and partake of this supper okay, at this table of this person who we've said is a model of Jesus Christ uh, and they partake of bread and wine. And what did Jesus say? I shall not eat of the fruit of the vine again until that day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Incredible. So uh, interesting as well that uh, Boaz actually kind of waits on her. He, he passes her this parched corn. Uh, maybe it's because he wants to get a closer look. You know, I don't know. You know, remember when you were you were going out for, for those you can remember that far back, or those of you who are in that position. You know, and you just kind of find any excuse, don't you? You know, I remember when I was going out with Joy, and you know, I got to post a letter, and I'll go and post at the one at the top of Mill Hill. You know, <laughs> why? I just just because I was going that way. You know, and we do those kind of, when you're in love, those kind of things happen. And I just kind of get the hint here that, that maybe Boaz was doing this, you know. He was kind of, probably it was a big table and certainly, you know, his key servants would have been next to him. But he passes her the, the, the parched corn and, and the implication is he made an effort to do it. You know, maybe he got up out of his seat and they probably thought, where's he going? And he said, would you like some? You know, probably just, just to maybe get a bit closer to it, just trying to be friendly. And, you know, maybe just trying to keep it quiet, you know, not trying to give too much away. And, um, you know, it doesn't work because people soon realise that there's something going on. So. But that's the way it is, you know. So. I mean, I, again, I, I remember with, with Joy, you know, she, she would be um, at a church after service when we were down the landmark. And... Um, Ross would go and everyone else would go and there'd be two or three of us left and it would, it would be like um, and somebody somebody mentioned the fact that Joy's missed to lift home and it would be like oh, oh 
I could give you a lift if you want. You know, and with, you, you think you planned it so well, nobody's going to twig it. You know. But they just, well, this is it. This is it. But isn't it? You know, but that. You, know, you, you think you're being really. Yeah. No, no. You, you, you think you're being clever at the time. You think nobody's going to notice. I'm sure this partly was going on here with Boaz as well. So. Um, okay, verse uh, 15. I'm just going to see a little bit. There we go. Um, and when she was risen up to glean, so after the meal she goes back out to glean, uh, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not, uh, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, uh, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So the cat's out of the bag by now. Though the guys know that there's something going on, that he likes her. All right. Um, the... Um, that uh, line there, let some of the handfuls of purpose fall. Is, you know, let some of the handfuls fall on purpose is, is the implication there. Um, so, um, Joe Foch again makes the comment that these handfuls of purpose are all around us as well. Things that God has left for us. You know, things that we maybe think that, that just so happens. You know, that God has left things. You know, and he, he recounts a story of when uh, they were looking for a house. They only had one child at the time. Uh, and they went to this place, and the guy said how much it was going to cost to rent this place, and they thought, you know, they couldn't really afford it. And he wanted uh, three months' rent up front, and, you know, and um, they made some comment, and he said, sorry, what did you say? And they said, oh, something about church or something. He said, are you Christians? And he said, and Joe said, yeah, we are. And uh, the guy said, oh, praise the Lord, so am I. He said, well, don't worry about the rent. Just do, do, do it as and when. You know, but those kind of things, haven't they happened in our lives? You know. Have, haven't we? No, they still have to pay, but not just straight away. You know, but haven't those things happened in our lives where you know all of a sudden you've been in a situation you think, wow, you know, God just engineered that. You know, it wasn't just a you know just so happens. You know, God was working in it. And he said, then they, they got in and they had everything they needed uh, apart from a fridge freezer. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and he said, this old lady from God's Street is saying, I've got a fridge freezer. Does anybody need one? <laughs> So that was it. So they then had a fridge freeze as well. You know, and, and again, the way God works, uh, incredible um, in situations. And, it, and it, God does the same thing for us all over the place in different situations. Verse 17. Uh, so she gleaned in the field until evening, uh, beat out that she had gleaned. Uh, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's seven bushels. <laughs> it's a lot more than she was expected to bring home that day. Okay. Um, she she beat it out. Basically, she got all the, the, the um, um, she, she got all the sheaves and she beat it out. They had the threshing floor, which was normally at the top of the hill. Um, what they used to do, they used to beat it out, and the, the wind used to then carry all the, the chaff away, uh, and then all the grain would then fall in what they call the threshing floor area, and then they just collected up. So um, she stayed. She waited until she could obviously get the opportunity to use the threshing floor, and then she gets her, um, her barley um, out, and uh, she's got so much. She's got far far more than she was expecting. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a measure. I don't know quite. I don't know what it would, it would equate to to us. It is so many pecks. Yes, you're quite right. I think. Was it? I think about four, four or five pecks. I think actually, I remember reading. Yes, yeah, about four or five pecks. Yeah. So, but it was. It was. Uh, it was far more than she was expecting. And then, um, verse eighteen. Uh, it says. And, and she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth, and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. I read that like, time and time again. I even read it in the NIV just to see how that messed it up. And I, could, I couldn't figure out. And I, fortunately, I turned to one of Matthew Henry's commentaries, and it all made sense. But what happened was, she brought forth. That means she brought forth, she got something out, and gave to her, I to Naomi, that... Um, she had reserved after she was sufficed. When was she sufficed? When she'd had the meal during the day. What she'd done is she'd taken a packed lunch home for her mum. That's what she's done. This is what this verse is saying. And I was just, just the, the compassion, the thought, the concern that this, this, this girl had. It's incredible. Um, and her mother-in-law said to her, where has thou gleaned today? You know, look at all this stuff. And, uh, and where rulest thou? He says, blessed, and she's, before she even knows who it is, she says, blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And, and and she showed her mother-in-law um, with whom she had wrought and said, the man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. All of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Now, just imagine for Naomi. It's been a great day as far as we've concerned. We've just kind of gone through it with Ruth. But Naomi's been sitting at home all day. 
wondering what's happened. You know, Ruth probably back a bit later than she thought. She's wondering, first of all, Naomi was, is she going to find anywhere that's going to accept her? She's a foreigner. You know, what's going to happen? And no doubt she's been worried sick about um, about Ruth. And I use that that term in all sincerity. You know, that she probably was almost at the point of making herself sick. Up until this point, you know, she was real doom and gloom. Um, all of a sudden, um, you know, uh, well, I'll just put a note here. I'm sorry if it's corny, but... <laughs> corny. Um, <laughs> But Ruth comes home grinning from ear to ear. So. <laughs> Think it through. <laughs> but Naomi bursts into life, and she's she's happy happy for possibly the first time in the book. You know, Naomi suddenly sees, you know, not just a provision before her, but a possibility opening up. Um, okay, okay, and. Um, I just again put no here. You know, how often do we doubt God's provision, um, sitting at home and moping, rather than acting in faith and gleaning and getting out and, and getting what God's provided for us? Um, but at this point, remember that Ruth doesn't yet know who Boaz is. All she knows is he's a wealthy landowner and you know something very special. Uh, other than she obviously she's a powerful, rich, good-looking guy with a big field and lots of servants. But we go on. Uh, verse 20, Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord. Okay, now, before, when she didn't know who it was, it was, blessed be, uh, blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. It's now, blessed be he of the Lord, who has not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now, that implies that the fact that he's not left off his kindness means that Naomi obviously remembers him from the past. And this is the way he used to be. He used to be a kind man. He was obviously known for being a kind man. And she's saying, yeah, blessed be he of the Lord, who's, who's not stopped being kind um, to the living and to the dead. So presumably he'd been kind to the family in times past also. And Naomi said unto her, uh, the, man, I mean, the man is near of kin unto us. And then maybe it dawns, and she says, one of our next kinsmen. He's not just near of kin. He's not just a family member. Um, but he is our next kinsman. You know, this is next in line, and this is what we're going to go on to see, because the light's gone for Naomi. She starts to realise all of this, and probably thinks to herself, why didn't I think of this before? Now, the reason uh, for Naomi's delight uh, is twofold. It's one, because of uh, a Jewish law known as the law of redemption. Now, we're going to look at this next week, so we won't, we won't go into it tonight. Um, but the law of redemption um, dealt with the land. And it had to be a family member, and the next of kin was the one, we did mention this briefly last week, that was the one that was able to, to purchase the land back again. Now, Naomi was under the impression that she'd lost and forfeited her land, and that was it, it wasn't going to get, get it back. Now she realises that there is somebody next of kin that could actually get this back. But more than that, that's the, the law of redemption. As I say, we'll deal with it next week. Um, uh, well, as I say next week, it's actually going to be a fortnight's time, the next uh, session of Ruth, I'll mention it in a moment. But, um, um, and then the other one is the law of the Leverite marriage. Um, and this, again, we did mention again last time that a, a family member was obligated, uh, a male, if uh, a brother or if a husband had died without any uh, offspring, then the next in line, next family member in line, would, should take the wife and raise up children for the deceased husband. That was the, the Jewish law. Now, there was three conditions to that. Uh, you had to be um, able to do it, so obviously you had to be a family member. Um, you also had to be willing to do it, um, because if you weren't willing, you didn't have to, you, you weren't obligated to do it, or those expected that you would do it. Um, and I forget the third thing now that Chuck Misler said. Um, um, well, we'll find that one out next time. But um, you, the, you had to, you had to obviously the, the kinsman had to be prepared to go through with this. It wasn't something that he was obligated to do, but obviously if he chose to do, uh, and obviously in a position also to do it. Okay, um, so this is probably part of what's going on in Naomi's mind as she's starting to think these things through uh, and the possibilities that are presenting themselves. And obviously, from the way that, that Ruth has come back talking about this man, she starts to detect there could be something more going on. And bear in mind, this was only their first meeting as well. Um, next time, we're also going to look in Jeremiah 25, because there's a, a bit there that also deals with this, um, this uh, the law of redemption of the land, uh, if you like. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at that. It's Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, and then we'll see the parallel in our last session when we get to it, in Revelation 5, when Jesus purchases back the land. So... Um, 
and then uh, verse 21, then Ruth the Moabitess said, um, he said also unto me, thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. Um, so Ruth's obviously excited and she's saying, look, he wants me to go back again. You know, he's told me that I can go back and, and, and be part of this. Um, but I thought it was interesting that of all the things that Ruth said about this that was recorded, there's no mention of Ruth bragging and saying, he said I was a wonderful person. He said I was really good. He said that I've been really good looking after you and all this lot. There's, no, there's just humility there. And I thought that's just an, another little important thing that's, you know, um, no mention of her talking about herself. I mean, Boaz made quite a big thing uh, in verse you know, 11 or so, uh, verse 12, about you know, this, this, this character that he was choosing um, to uh, pour his favour on. But she doesn't mention that. Um, and then we, in verse 22, it says, And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good. You know, this, is, this is really, really good. You know, and I don't think in this that Naomi was just thinking of her own ends, because she was obviously concerned for Ruth's welfare as well. He said, It's good, my daughter, uh, that thou go out with his maidens, uh, that they meet thee not in sorry uh, that they meet thee not in any other field. Um, now it's interesting because in the verse before Ruth has just made this comment that uh, you know the, the, from what Boaz has said that thou shalt keep fast by my young men, and Naomi maybe is the protective mother-in-law saying you know yeah that's good you go back and you can work with the girls you know, <laughs> keep away from the boys you know. And I think in that, what she's saying is, you know, don't bother looking anymore. <laughs> we found someone for you. Um, okay. In, um, um, yeah, I was just, uh, it, it, Naomi, by this time, is obviously pretty sure that the, the Ruth is quite interested because of the way she responds, you know, that, that uh, he's invited her back and everything else. Um, so for, for Naomi, I just put a note there, you know, what a difference a day can make. You know, that morning, all doom and gloom. That evening, you know, so go get a wedding dress then. You know. <laughs> but it is how things are turned around. You know, she started the morning in, in poverty and with nothing. And at the end of the day, they have an abundance and they have a bright future to look forward to. You know, <laughs> and in a sense, you, you, you can see the model in us, you know, the, you know, the, the, the BC, you know, before Christ and, and after Christ. Um, you know, before Christ, what kind of mess we were in. You know, and then that one day that we come to know the Lord, how everything changes in our lives from then on. But also, I mean, it's applicable in our daily walk, isn't it? You know, and the lesson there is to trust God. And Naomi probably looked back on this and, and thought, you know, if only I trusted all the way through. I mean, her, her whole issue in, in, in the family moving away to start with. Uh, we're not told specifically what Naomi's views on that were, but the fact is she went along with it. She went... Um, if she'd have been patient and waited on the Lord, how much better would things have been for her? Um, and through this, particularly this day and leading up to this time on their back, if she'd have just trusted in the Lord, she would have seen God's provision. And again, she should have done the way of agape. She would have been. So, uh, and then finally, verse 23. So she kept fast by the maidens. So this is obviously Ruth. So she kept fast by the maidens, listening to what her mother-in-law had said. Uh, maidens of Boaz uh, to glean unto the end of uh, of barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwell with her mother-in-law. So she stays at home living with her mother-in-law, and she says, "And now this is going to be um, anything up to about three months period that she goes back day after day, day after day." And she was probably as pleased to get to that field in the morning as Boaz was to see her arrive. And then we've got this little romance that starts to blossom now as she goes back day after day, and they start seeing each other. And no doubt, Boaz have probably invited her for a few more meals there um, and everything else, and this starts to grow. So, And that's uh, where we'll leave it, but it's uh, to be continued. <laughs>